Okay, here's Dr. Bob. I don't know about this introduction. I'm saying after you finish Dr. Bob's. Am I for dessert tonight or something? Yes, dessert. Kind of frightening. I thought I would share with you all for a few minutes here. I don't want to take a lot of your time, but I share something of my experience becoming a Christian. Um, I was a teenager once. Really? Really? I was. And. Um, Actually, to go back a little earlier than that, the, um, the summer before I was going into sixth grade, I was invited to a summer camp that was sponsored by the denomination that I'm now a minister in, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And though I had been attending the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for all oh, about a year and a half, and assuming all along, well, I mean, you know, we go to church, we're Christians and so forth, I at the summer camp heard someone who preached the message and made it very clear that in order to be a Christian you can't just take for granted that you belong to the Lord because your parents are religious or because uh, you go to church or what have you. And uh, I don't know, I, I can really tell the difference. I remember very vividly the way I saw things and felt about life and about myself and my, you know, what kind of world we lived in and uh, you know, what life is all about. Much differently uh, before that night than after that night. Um, I've heard a lot of sermons in my life. I know many of you probably figure you've heard a lot of sermons as well. Not all of them stand out equally. Um, sometimes the pastor does a really marvelous job, and sometimes that's so so, and sometimes we listen well, and sometimes well, we're so so. But uh, I'll tell you, I don't think I'll ever forget this particular message. That I heard this night, the pastor who was preaching talked about something which, even uh, to this point, I find very hard um, to believe. He was talking about how, when a sinner who is lost has been found, the angels in heaven rejoice. And that was his particular text out of Luke's Gospel. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, well, in terms of what the Bible teaches about what God wants of me in my life and how I should serve Him with everything that I have, and He should be the center of my attention, He should be my highest priority, I should be willing to sacrifice anything for Him, I knew very well that I wasn't living that way. Um, I really had other plans, and if God fit into my plans, then that's great, you know, but if God didn't fit into my plans, well, so much the worse. And so that evening, I, um, I seriously um, looked at how far short of God's glory my life was falling and realized that one isn't automatically right with God just because his or her parents go to church or he goes to church regularly, what have you. And so I got to thinking, what a marvelous merciful, gracious God this is, if it should be a cause for rejoicing that someone who falls so, so far short of his glory as me should be brought into his kingdom. That's what the assurance of the Bible is, that it's party time in heaven when a sinner is found. 
And the angels rejoice in that. Uh, God is so merciful to us. After, um, I remember going back that evening to my dorm, you know, and praying to God in a way that was so much clearer, uh, in a way that uh, I don't think any of my prayers had been before, that just kind of bounced off the ceiling, I'm sure. Uh, because I finally knew about God's mercy and had made a personal commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but then you see, after that, realizing what it meant to be a Christian and to be a disciple of Christ and to take up my cross and follow Him was another matter. Not that I'm unhappy about what the Lord has put me through, but I didn't realize, you see, that now when I go back to school, there was going to have to be a difference in, in my lifestyle, in my testimony, in the things that I said. Um, and I noticed that to the degree that I tried to, um, to testify for the Lord Jesus, make it clear to people that there was a, a real mercy and goodness in the Bible that they should discover by reading it and coming to know Christ, I found out the more I wanted to live that kind of life, uh, it seemed like the less popular you know, that I would be. There were people who just thought, you know, boy, what a geek, talking about all this religious stuff all the time, being interested in these things, and not uh, really going along with uh, what everybody else back in junior high and senior high especially was doing in terms of what they considered a good time. Now, when I was in high school, um, I turned out for uh, the basketball team and for the, the tennis squad, and I grew up in a, a neighborhood that was, oh, I guess you would consider it lower middle class. It was a working class neighborhood. And um, academic pursuits were not really honored very much. I mean, there were people who were brainy kids and so forth, and they got certificates at the end of the school year and so forth. But I mean, in order to be accepted, what you really need to do is to excel at athletics. And that, uh, for me, uh, was something at the center of my life. Um, the Lord blessed me with a pretty mean serve in tennis. Um, well enough that... Thank you. <laughs> Any more? <laughs> my... Um, my junior year in high school, I was privileged to go to our league championships in tennis and, uh, and to move to a second place position. It was thought that my senior year I'd be able to go to the state championships and maybe earn a college scholarship. Um, and I was really excited about that. And that was very important to me, to be a good tennis player. I thought it would be uh, a continuing part of my life. And although I had a reputation at a very large school, I went to a high school of about 3,000 students, had a reputation for being the Youth for Christ president, so I had also been elected the student body president of the high school. So, I mean, I was really involved. My senior year in high school, I was one of the editors of the school paper. I sang in the Coralier group, which was uh, supposed to, I don't know how I got in it, but it was supposed to be you know, a select singing group uh, there on campus. Uh, I was set to play my uh, senior year of basketball and hopefully go to the state champions and championship in tennis. And just everything seemed lined out for me. 
And it, it, you know, I thought life was perfect. And the Lord brought into my life a, a young lady that seemed to me would be an excellent wife and so forth, and things just were looking great. And uh, at the beginning of that year, in October of that year, I had to get my yearly sports physical, which was required in California for anyone participating in school sports. And the doctor said, you know, strange, I hear a slight murmur in your heart that I haven't heard before. I'm sure that it's really nothing. And uh, said, however, I'd be irresponsible not to have you go to a cardiologist and have more technical tests done, just so we can be sure that you're not going to be hurting yourself, you know, by playing. So just to show you where my mind was, I said, well, can you give me a temporary release so I can be turning out for basketball and doing the things I need to do at this point? He said, no, technically, you got to go to the doctor and do it right. So I was kind of, uh, okay, well, I'll do it fine. I'm going to just get done with this little drill, and uh, then I'll be on living my life with all these grand plans that I had. So I went to the cardiologist, and he did three days worth of tests, and then I remember this uh, Wednesday afternoon that I went back to get the results. I had to drive to downtown Los Angeles and wait through the traffic and wait till the end of the day. I still remember the sun was setting outside. I finally got into the doctor's office, and when he sat me down, the first thing he said to me is he, I'm not so sure his bedside manner is all that we might ask him at the doctor, but he sat me down, and the first sentence out of his mouth is, well, Greg, you'll be out of athletics for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. I said, come again? What? You'll be out of athletics for the rest of your life. I said, why? He said, because this murmur turns out not to be just a minor, you know, uh, burp in the heart, as it were. But he said, you've got an aortic insufficiency, meaning that the aorta valve in the heart doesn't close tight. So that every time blood is pumped out of your heart, some seeps back into the heart, which makes the heart muscle work harder than the next time it pumps to get all of the blood out, and then some more seeps back. And it's just a constant pattern of overworking your heart. Now, I don't know. You know what would you do? You're sitting there, and again, you know, I thought I had this vision of where my life was going and who I was and so forth. And, uh, I mean, just like that, less than five seconds, this guy had cut me off, I mean, completely. It turned out later uh, that the situation wasn't as severe as he would have required as a cardiologist. Another cardiologist who did further tests in the hospital said that I could have some mild activity. I wouldn't have to, but I would not be able to do competitive tennis or basketball, of course. And so now here I am in my senior year in high school, and I'm having to rethink what does the Lord want of me? Who am I? Where am I going? What do I want to do? And it was about that time um, that I became very serious about studying uh, the scriptures and knowing more about my Christian faith and wondering how God might use me perhaps in the Christian ministry. And I went off to college and went to a, a Christian college in Santa Barbara. I thought that I would study for the ministry there and about my sophomore year in college, head of the philosophy department came and suggested that perhaps I had uh, gifts in that area and I should think about working in the area of philosophy. 
well, I'll make a long, boring life um, short for you here. So I got a philosophy major. I went to Westminster Seminary to get some theological training, did a couple of degrees there, and then went back to Southern California um, and got my PhD in philosophy because it was my hope that uh, I'd be able to help people to understand not only the Word of God, but why the Word of God is true over against uh, the way, in many ways, in which people in the world attack the Christian faith. Um, after that point, again, I, I felt that perhaps I had a pretty good view of where I should be going with my life and how things would develop. And, uh, and then again, a series of things happened in my life that uh, indicated that I can't really think far enough down the line to plan these things out like I thought I could. It'd be very comfortable for us to think we know where we're going in life, but uh, we sometimes find out we don't. It doesn't work out that way. Series of problems, political problems in the school where I was teaching, uh, brought me to a different kind of ministry than I thought that I was going to get involved in. Um, after I was in uh, a ministry of teaching for a while, it turned out that my heart problem had turned much worse and I had to have open heart surgery. And uh, if that weren't bad enough, a few weeks before the open heart surgery, I had an infection that settled in my heart, which meant that I had to go into the hospital weeks in advance and have like 20 million units of penicillin pumped through me every day in an attempt to get rid of that infection so they could do the surgery. When that seemed to be um, under control a week before the surgery, they did a routine procedure, a catheterization, which is the threading of a catheter uh, up into the heart where radiographic dye is deposited and then they x-ray your body so they can get all of the chambers of the heart and the flow of the blood and so forth. And it's a fairly routine procedure except that for some reason I went into anaphylactic shock when they did it. And uh, they still don't know why that is, but that evening they had to revive me three times. Uh, at two in the morning I woke up and I remember seeing my cardiologist leaning over my bed saying, you sure have given us a hard time tonight, Greg. <coughs> I said, why? What's been going on? He said, well, you died four times on us. Why don't you stop doing that? <laughs> a week later they did the open heart surgery and I got a new valve. And people have sometimes said, well, you know, what's that like when they cut open your chest and cut into your heart and that kind of stuff? And uh, there are human words to tell you about the pain that involves this. If you can imagine what it's like to have a freight train go over your chest. That's what recovery from open heart surgery is like. But God is good, and though I thought I would never be able to roll over in bed again without feeling excruciating pain in the middle of my chest, after a, you know, a few weeks and a couple more months, eventually I was up and running again. And so I thought, okay, now that's behind me. My health has been taken care of. You know, I'm, I'm working in a new church, pastoring. I've got a, a teaching position in the Christian school, which I'm happy with. And so now, finally, I understand where my life is going and what I'm supposed to do. And then uh, a few uh, years after that, it turned out that the artificial valve they put in was beginning to fray, and they were going to have to do the surgery again. And so I'm going through another period of reevaluation of God. Why are you doing this? What do you want from me? Where am I going? They did this surgery, and they didn't tell me for 
about three weeks, but it uh, took them quite a while to get the heart muscle to start again after the surgery. So uh, once again, the Lord, you know, in His in His own goodness, uh, brings me through a very traumatic situation. Seven months after that, I thought that I had um, stomach flu. Uh, one night I went out on a pastoral call, came back just feeling really sick and so forth. The next day I tried to rest and went to half a day of my teaching and so forth. And I got a little bit better, but I was still sick. And so at the end of the week, on Friday, my wife suggested that we call the cardiologist and just tell him I've been sick and I'm supposed to report those things. And I said, well, you know, I think I'm doing okay. You call him. I'm going to go to school and teach my classes. And about... Uh, Mid-morning, I got a call from my wife saying that the cardiologist wanted to meet me at the hospital where he was doing his regular rounds just to check it out and make sure it was okay. And I got fairly angry about that. I was a little put out. I have, you know, classes to teach. We're going to get behind in our material. I just had other plans, right? But uh, since the cardiologist was waiting for me, I went ahead and I uh, left the school and went over to the hospital. While I was there, they did an examination, and lo and behold, the symptoms were such, they drew the conclusion that I was bleeding internally. And so that afternoon, or early afternoon, they had a doctor come in who was going to, I know you've all eaten, and I hate to tell you these horrible medical gross things, but they have a, they have a, a catheter that they put down your throat that goes down into your intestine. And he has a scope on it. He can see where it's going into your intestine. And then at the end of that, they cauterize the bleeding in your stomach. And so they said they were going to do this. And I know I thought open heart surgery was bad, but then doing this thing, they have to numb the back of your throat so that you don't, uh, you know, reject this instrument going in and so forth. They're going down, doing this stuff, and I'm just thinking, God, I hope this ends soon. <coughs> And eventually it did. He said, well, we're going to have to take it out. He said, the bad news is there's so much blood in your intestine that we can't find where the source of the bleeding is. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, then what does that mean? Because we're going to have to do open stomach surgery and stitch it. And so, you know, I've been in the hospital a lot, right? You know, I'm a veteran of hospitals. I know about this stuff. And so I said, okay, don't go to home and then Monday morning come back and check in for surgery on Monday or Tuesday, he said, no, we're going to have you in surgery in less than 30 minutes. Yeah. And I said, why? And I mean, I'm, I'm still not getting the point. He said, because in 30 minutes you'll be dead if we don't get this stop. He said, you've lost so much blood, you're going to go into shock. Mm. Now, the rest of the story is fairly routine. They rushed me to surgery. They, they did the surgery. They stopped the bleeding. Uh, I had staples from my navel up to my sternum. Of course, I already had a scar from my throat to my sternum because of the open heart surgery. So, you know, my cardiologist saw me after all this. He said, well, that's quite a zipper you got. You a scar from here to here, you know. So, it's unzipping and getting the one inside there. Um, but in reflecting on that, remember I said I was really kind of put out that I had to go over and do this. The doctor later told me, he said, if you had tried to teach for the rest of the day, you would have gone into shock, and by the time the paramedics would have got you to the hospital, you would have been dead. So it just seems like God has brought me so close, over and over and over again, taking me into his eternal kingdom and then leaving me here on earth, that it's only natural that I would try to find some reason why he would do that and try to make good use of the time that I have 
while I'm here. And so, you know, you start counting your blessings and you look at the things God has given you and you become a lot more grateful for the life you have and you see that, uh, you know, you really are living for eternity and every moment ought to be spent uh, trying to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to live by His Word and honor Him. Well, I figured after all of that, I mean, how much more could a guy go through, right? And... Um, and through all of the ups and downs of my education or uh, teaching and ministry, the health problems and everything else, um, I suppose from a human standpoint, the one thing that I would have said was the sweetest part of my life um, was my wife. Uh, I had met her in high school. We were high school sweethearts. And uh, it's really because of her care for me I felt many times that I just had the strength to go on. And uh, for reasons that I don't yet understand, a few years ago, my wife ran off, abandoned me and our four children. And she has been excommunicated by our church and we are now divorced. I'm telling you, you can't tell where life is going to go. You don't know at what point the Lord may take you home. And when all is said and done, you may think that you have this great tennis skill, or you might be able to teach in a school that you look forward to, or at least you're going to have this family always to be with you. And God teaches us that we cannot count on these things. What can we count on? Why is it that, uh, that I'm able to sit here today and to tell you this story? It's still hard to tell. It's not easy to relive those things. But I just want to give glory to God. But, uh, though people have often, you know, made it hard on me, and uh, there have been a lot of experiences that were very dreadful, the Lord has always been faithful. He's kept His word to me at every point. And I know very much uh, now, tonight, uh, uh, so much more clearer when I realized years and years ago that night that I was at that youth camp and hearing a man talk about the mercy of God that he and the angels would rejoice to have one sinner be found. And now I know about that mercy and experience after experience after experience. And so if I had one thing that I would share with the young people based on my own experiences to really appreciate that we have a God who cares and pursues you and demonstrates his readiness to forgive and who is faithful to you no matter what you may think your life is going to be. I was a teenager once. I told you that. You're all teenagers. You're young. And no one can fault you. I hope no one faults you that you're enthusiastic and you may think you know where your life is going and so forth. But trust me, you don't know what turns your life is going to take. You don't know what problems you may encounter. You don't know how long you're going to live, for that matter. And so at this point... You shouldn't put off making important decisions, serious decisions, about what you want to uh, put at the top of the scale of value for you. Make sure that what you put up there is what Jesus recommended when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. If you put anything else in the place of seeking God's kingdom and pursuing a devotion to Jesus Christ before if you have anything that you put before that, then you might uh, have the blessing 
having God knock it out of the way so that you can put the right things first. And I trust that you won't know the disaster of having to meet him and have to confess that you didn't honor him for who he was, and that's the Lord over life. Now, what else can I tell you? Um, I hope you take that to heart. I'd like to leave with you also some encouragement that not only is God faithful to us in terms of the, the rough experiences of our lives, but God is also <clears throat> the living and true God. He is entirely uh, faithful in terms of the truth that He reveals to us as well. And throughout all this time of up and down experiences in my life, I was also a student and a teacher who learned uh, over and over and over again how reliable the Word of God is over against the uh, competing teachings that are there in the world. Uh, I, don't, I haven't seen every objection, I'm sure. There's always going to be some creative new reason why people shouldn't believe the Bible. But I've seen a whole lot of them. My guess is, and I don't say this with a sense of pride, but just to give you some idea of what I've been trying to do with my life, if you were all to write down the biggest objections you could think of about the Bible, if you put them all together, I'll bet you I've seen every one of them. And what I want to tell you is having seen every one of them and having studied how to answer them and studied with people who were very antagonistic to the Bible, I am more and more convinced that God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. You know, uh, when all is said and done, the world has nothing to offer you intellectually. I'm not going to try to appeal to you to, about the world not offering something in terms of its entertainments or enthusiasms or its money or its pride or what have you. That's a, that's a moral problem you're all going to have to face. Is, you know, whether you want to live for worldly things or for following Jesus Christ. But when it comes to these intellectual questions of whether the world has an insight or truth to offer that stands over against the Scripture and is superior to it, it absolutely is not. People propagate um, this idea that we came you know, into this world through an evolutionary process. Uh, the theory of evolution is a ridiculous theory in terms of its intellectual scholarly foundations. But since it's socially accepted, in fact in many places the state schools are uh, set up in such a way that you can't teach anything contrary to that point of view, our culture sometimes thinks, well, it's just a settled issue about evolution. I'm here to tell you it just ain't so. You have people who will tell you, well, I mean, you can't just follow the Christian revelation because there are a lot of different gods or claims to uh, who is God in this world. There are a lot of different revelations. And I'm here to tell you that though there are a lot of different uh, revelations claiming to be God's word, none of them provide the foundations necessary for moral absolutes, the foundations necessary for being rational or scientific. They don't provide foundations for human dignity and how we should treat each other. And so, again, God makes foolish the wisdom of this world. And uh, I don't know if you have, how much time you have before you want, want to run here, but I thought, if anything, I, I might take just a few minutes to let you ask questions that you might have yourselves about the Bible and its truth and the problems that people have with it, that uh, perhaps I could help sharpen your ability to respond to those people who have objections to your faith. But then maybe you wouldn't want to do that.
that. I know you were thinking ahead of time, but that's what I was going to ask. But if I could share anything informally that would be beneficial, it seemed to me that might be it. I have a, actually have two questions. So one of them deals, I think actually it's Dr. Gentry who uh, gave a talk on the Great Commission. And uh, in it he mentioned about Christians aligning themselves with secular causes. Uh, what I was curious about is at what point does it does it get to a uh, point where it's detrimental to uh, you as God's child and uh, your uh, Christian causes? Um, in the question and answer period, I, I tried to indicate that because of the time in which we live where the Christian church is so splintered and I think ineffective, in dealing with some of these issues like abortion or homosexuality or what have you, uh, we will find it necessary as we want to accomplish anything to make common cause with people uh, that don't have the same ultimate outlook that we do and do not reason the way we do to our conclusion. Um, and we do that because in a democratic society, in the end, you want to have more people rather than less people drawing that conclusion. So. These people who come over, we want their votes and we want their cooperation and help, but at the same time we want them to think in a way which is more honoring to the Word of God. We want them to reason more clearly, to have a good basis for the conclusion they draw rather than a bad one. Uh, so that would be kind of the rule of thumb that I would give to Christians. And then I would say, however, there are some cases where our disagreements with the people we're working with are so great and it is such a... Um, such a reproach on the name of Christ to be associated with people like that, that we just simply have to say we can't work with them at all. I think of uh, cases where um, members of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, draw a similar conclusion as an evangelical Christian would on some social issue, and then they want to come over and make common cause with you. And the problem is that the, uh, uh, the racism and the hatred and other things that are associated with the bad reputation of the Ku Klux Klan are so dramatic that I think we as Christians simply have to say we really don't want to you know, work with you because uh, it, it's just too much of a blight on the name of Christ for our church or our family or what have you to be affiliated like that. Okay, my second one was that in reading, in, it seems to me that uh, in uh, classes, high school classes, college classes, uh, reading philosophers' works, Socrates and all that, um, is, is of course advocated, uh, but uh, what's the ultimate purpose for a Christian? What you, can you see, I, I, from what I've read, a lot of them end up being driven to it, having a, a need for a God. Um, but do you think there's anything special that Christians can do? Yeah, I think there is value in Christians, you know, studying the philosophers, but I don't I don't mean to say by that that every Christian needs to study um, in the same way or the same depth and the same kind of program. Not everyone needs to get a PhD in philosophy. I do think some people are called to do that. I believe that God called me to do that. But I don't think, you know, sometimes when I promote the study of philosophy from a Christian perspective, people get the impression that I'm trying to get, you know, recruit people to 
class, uh, to earn a doctorate in philosophy, to become a philosophy major in college, what have you. But that isn't my intention. Some people should, but not everyone should. But I think everyone should be aware of what the alternatives are in terms of worldviews and philosophies of life out there. In the first place, so that you might give greater glory to God and be thankful for what you have. You know, sometimes you don't know how good it is until you study the alternatives. Kind of like, you know, Noah, who got upset with all the animal dung he had to step in as he's walking around the ark. I am sure that when he looked over the edge, he got to think it wasn't so bad on the ark after all. Sometimes by contrast, we learn, you know, what our blessings are. And so that in itself makes it worthwhile. Secondly, if we're going to effectively encounter the varieties of unbelief, we have to answer as Christians. We need to master uh, the thinking and the systems of unbelievers. I don't believe that uh, you can effectively give a witness to somebody who just talks circles around you in terms of his uh, philosophy of life. You have to keep saying, well, I don't know about that, I don't know about that. It's much more effective for you to say, yeah, I've studied what you have to say, and I've studied what Jesus has to say, and then how about you? In almost all of us, they have to study the Christian point of view. And if you want to effectively answer them and refute them, you have to know where they're coming from. I think also that if we want to understand in a general, not just an individual way, but generally how our culture thinks and why it does the things it does, and how we can effectively present a Christian answer both in, act, in our actions and in our testimony, we have to understand where our culture is coming from. So there is value in studying non-Christian philosophy, not only that we give greater glory to God and appreciate what we have, but that we can more effectively defend the faith and then thirdly uh, present, I think, a more credible and relevant testimony to our culture to meet its needs because our culture is looking here and there for an answer to its problems and we can present answers. We just need to know what they're struggling with. Two good questions for not being prepared to have questions today. Anything you'd like to ask? You don't have to, but uh, if you want to take a few moments, I'll hang around to do that. Well, I've had uh, a couple conversations with the kids I suppose for quite some time, and uh, I got in a conversation with uh, three uh, fairly smart uh, kids that were in a class I was in, and uh, a couple, one of them, a couple of them thought Buddhism was really a, a cool religion. That was, that was their words, and but they didn't really. They come in from a very different atmosphere than I'm used to, and they were. They just don't think they really see me for any god whatsoever, and they just. But they just think that these people are living holy lives and stuff like that. And they were sitting there trying to throw, <coughs> trying to uh, throw stumbling blocks in my way. And, Stuff like that, and I couldn't say a word in edgewise. It was, you know, it was three to one, and I was sitting here trying to talk to them. How best to get around people, or get two people who don't even think they want God? Okay, uh, let's deal with Buddhism in particular. All right, uh, just an aside before I get to the real issue here. 
when when uh, people, especially in your age group, talk about how cool they think Buddhism is or something else, that almost always tips you off. They don't know a whole lot of what they're talking about. And so, I mean, they've got a lot of enthusiasm about this. What probably means is they've heard one or two axioms from somebody who isn't a Buddhist, and they think they've, you know, they've kind of wired the system, they've got it down. And so, you'll find that you can do a lot of very destructive work in terms of debating other points of view by just questioning them and asking them more about what they believe and why they believe it. Secondly, you need to know what the two cardinal sins in intellectual circles or philosophical circles, what the two cardinal sins scholars make are. And if you remember this, I don't expect you're going to get a lot out of this one thing, but if you can hold on to this and develop the ability to do this, you'll become more effective in defending the faith. The two cardinal sins committed by scholars are one, arbitrariness, just throwing things out because it's cool or it fits or it's convenient or what have you, arbitrariness, and secondly, inconsistency. And so while you get them to talk about what they believe as quasi-Buddhist or budding Buddhist or whatever it may be, you want to watch for whether they have a good reason for everything they've been able to. why do you believe that? Or why do you believe that? Or why do you believe that? And what you're going to get is a variety of, well, it just seems good to me. I mean, I kind of like that idea. Or, you know, again, a lot of it doesn't that seem cool. And you have to then ask them, whether it is reasonable to think that God would leave us to just make things up on our own about if there is a God, doesn't it stand to reason that God would have to reveal himself and he wouldn't leave it to us to make up you know, 57 different varieties of what he might be? After all, he had, if he's God, he has ultimate authority and therefore his revelation is what's necessary over against this arbitrariness. Moreover, while they're talking, if I were to teach you an elementary course in philosophy, it'd be easier to, to do this. But even without that, you have to watch for how they have one view of reality while they're talking sometimes, and then they turn around and give an opposite point of view about reality another time. And you have to call them on that. You know, no one gets a free ride when it comes to you know debate and philosophy. When they contradict themselves, they're going to have to resolve the contradiction. So be looking for arbitrariness in what they say, and there's going to be plenty of it, I can assure you, and inconsistency as well. Now, at this point, you're saying, but they're Buddhists. They say they don't need a god. Well, let's, let's just play with that one for a minute here. They don't need a god. But they do believe, as Buddhists, in meditation, right? And they do believe in some form of reincarnation. Now... Why would you believe that? In the first place, why would you meditate if there isn't a God? Well, uh, supposedly because it you know, gives you calmness of spirit, right? Do they meditate, by the way? Are they good practicing? They, they, they just suggested that we get on the topic of religion, and they just said that Buddhism is a cool religion, so... Yeah, well... But you see now how you already have a, a, a real battering ram to deal with them. They say, well, if it's so cool, why don't you practice this religion? Why don't, why don't you engage in, 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 in the yoga and, and, and meditation that is recommended? And then ask them, why do you do that? Why do you bother to do that? 
Well, the answer turns out in Buddhism to have something to do with the fact that there's evil in the world, and I don't want to participate in that evil system, so I'm going to have a different outlook, and I'm going to have a calm spirit, and so forth. And then the question is, well, how, you know, how's it going? You're doing the yoga and so forth, you're able to conquer the evil in the world, and the lust that's in your own life, and so forth and so on. I mean, in a real sense, I haven't even referred to the Bible yet, have I? And you got these people who are really giving you enough rope to hang themselves with. But let's push harder now, beyond you know, the nature of the religion they're propounding, you want to say, well, in this case, Buddhism is an atheistic religion. I know that sounds strange, but that's literally true. Buddhism doesn't think there is a personal God. Well, that means that when uh, you get to the bottom of it, Buddhists are going to have the same problem that naturalistic atheist and anybody else is going to have in explaining where this universe came from, why we believe there are moral absolutes, how you account for the dignity of man, whether a person should be rational or not, and on these major problems of philosophy and in terms of worldview, they don't have an answer. Why, Buddhists have a lot of rules by which you have to live, which is another thing you need to be aware of. In the end, Buddhism is what we call a moralistic religion. It's not a religion of transcendent mysticism, that is uh, putting you in touch with a god or the source of being or whatever it may be that goes beyond our human experience. Buddhism says, you know, it's here and now, you need to live for this life, and here's all these rules by which you have to live. You, know, you do this, you don't do that, and so forth and so on. At that point, I think you have the right to say, why should I follow that particular list of do's and don'ts? Why shouldn't I make up my own? Now, what are they going to appeal to? That, I mean, the only real way to escape the problem of moral relativism is to say, God told me so. See, if you say, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and they say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, you can say that, but I have a right to make up my own list of rules. You can say, well, okay, my rules come from God, and we'll talk more about that if you don't believe that claim. Where do your rules come from? You see? And if they say there is no God, what they're really saying is there isn't a way out of the problem of relativism. You have your rules, I have my rules, and I have just as much right as you do, if there is no God, to set down these rules. And so you, you, what you have here is a philosophy of life, a religion that wants to be moralistic, and yet cuts the foundation out from under morality in the process of trying to be moralistic. And um, well, I've talked on and on, you're probably getting a little tired of this, but I, I assure you that with any philosophy of life that you, I don't know if, you, if I have you know, the ability to do every single one of them, but all the ones that I know of, every philosophy of life has the same internal, what we call a dialectic, it's inability to make good on its own claims. And so maybe that gives you a little bit for further discussion. You may have to buy them a coat to hang, you know, to hang around for a while. Say, I, and I go with them more when I tell you. Let's just talk about this a little more. But you keep buying the coats and keep being polite and so forth. And whether you can change their hearts or not, that's God's work. Hopefully you can close their mouths. No <laughs> <laughs> question. Well, you're probably all thinking, when are we ever going to get out of here? Be no, this is, listen, this is the biggest tree they can have. It's, uh, they must have very, very boring rocks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today. Oh. <laughs>
I appreciate the flattery. Sure <laughs> well, let me ask you a question uh, that I think, uh, how important would you see logic in their education and what would you emphasize about uh, logic to them? Well, it's a hard sell for teenagers, and I know that going into this, but I'll tell you straight out. You want to get ahead in your education, no matter what field you go into, and if you want to be more effective in defending the Christian faith when you have Buddhist friends or quasi-Buddhist friends or evolutionist friends or atheist friends and so forth, um, apart from knowing, of course, your own Christian faith more clearly and fully and deeply, the best tool that you could get is logic. Logic will help you in any field you go into or make you a better writer if you're interested in English. You should be able to think clearly, be able to think in terms of how one thing leads to another and what's consistent with something else and what's inconsistent and so forth. It'll help you to be better in the, in the sciences and in math because you've got to be orderly. You have to learn not to contradict yourself in those fields. very important. So, um, can you give a brief little bit yet of what you would be learning or studying in a logic course? Sure. And I have a logic course that I teach at a higher level than high school, but I also taught high school philosophy for 10 years. And so I, I uh, though the course we offer through the Southern California Center for Christian Studies is probably a bit advanced for what you're looking for, I would gladly, if there were enough people interested, put together a course on a on a simpler level to do this. It can be done, others have done it. And I don't have to be the one who does it, but I'd be happy to try. Uh, what you need to master, first of all, is the whole area of, uh, what I'll call it linguistic philosophy. And that sounds, you know, you're saying, oh, boy. <laughs> Where's the Coke machine? I'm not sure <laughs> To be able to understand how language functions, to understand uh, what words are, what arguments are, what premises are, things like that. You just have to have the building blocks of, of uh, argumentation. And that means when someone um, <laughs> when someone says, here's my argument, you believe this way or I'll punch you right in the nose, you, you have to be able to identify that I'll punch you in the nose as not being a descriptive premise. That is, you're not describing anything, you're threatening. And threats have a different function in language than <coughs> descriptions do. I'm just taking a real simple example. So the first thing you should do is have an introduction to uh, sentences, uh, different functions of language, what arguments are, what premises are. People need to know the difference between a valid argument and a cogent argument. Um, and then secondly, and most importantly, I think, in logic classes that I teach, uh, there should be a unit on what we call informal fallacies. The fallacies that are committed in reasoning in normal languages, like you're talking to one another in English or Japanese or German or whatever it may be. And there are quite a few fallacies like that. The one I gave you a moment ago, you believe this or I'll punch you in the nose, is the fallacy of appealing to force. It's, uh, but, and it's fallacious because what it is, amounts to is my conclusion is true because if you don't believe it, you're going to hurt for it. But your hurting for something has no relationship to the truth of the conclusion. And so that's a, that's a fallacy of relevance. It's just not relevant. 
you may get away with threatening to punch me in the nose, and you may punch me in the nose, but that doesn't say anything for your argument. Um, or can 300 million Americans be wrong? You know, if people will kill something and say, statistics show, well, but you see, that's irrelevant too. And you need to learn there are only so many of these fallacious ways of, of argument out there. And you would have a lot of fun if you all read this book with good reason by Morris Engel and just found out what these informal fallacies are. You could spend your time every week when there's something, you know, better to do. Just pick up a periodical or a newspaper and say, today I'm going to find five fallacies in this paper. Now, I don't know that you'll take me seriously, but I wish you would. If you would learn what the fallacies are and train yourself to identify them, to say, I'm going to find five fallacies in the newspaper today. Boy, you will. Once you learn how, I mean, they start jumping out at you. And then thirdly, I think there should be some training in at least elementary symbolic logic, which is um, uh, logic that shows the relationship between uh, premises. If you will, logic that looks like algebra. You strip out the content of the premise and you put an A in its place or the content of another premise, B, and then you start asking, what is the logic if A then B? What is the logic of A and B, A or B? Uh, those sorts of things. And uh, so I'll give you an example, because I know you're, you got to all be fascinated in this. If, uh, <laughs> what am I doing? If, here's an argument for you. It looks like this when you write it out in algebraic formulation. If P then Q. Okay, someone says if da 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 da, then da 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 da. If you accept that if then connection, the next premise is the affirmation of Q. That is, if P, then Q, and then secondly, we know that Q is true. And so we affirm Q, and then we draw the conclusion, if P, then Q, Q, therefore P must be true. And you find that form of reasoning over and over and over again in this world. I mean, you just watch TV, watch an hour, well maybe you shouldn't watch an hour, <laughs> but if you watch an hour's worth of TV, just notice how often people commit what is called the fallacy of affirming the consequent. That is, if P then Q, the consequent is Q, affirm Q, and then conclude P from it. Now all of this, put it algebraically, sounds very abstract. Let me give you an example of this kind of argument. If Castro shot Kennedy, then Castro is a scoundrel. Okay, so if, and the P is Castro shot Kennedy. Okay, so if P, if Castro shot Kennedy, then Castro is a scoundrel. Now at this point, does anyone have any problem with the argument? Is that a premise that's acceptable to Where's you? Kennedy in his doesn't matter. We'll quantify. If Castro shot any of the candidates, now, if Castro assassinated President Kennedy, is he a scoundrel? I didn't say that he did it, notice. The premise is if he did it, is he a scoundrel? 
The most certainly yes. is the Bible still condemns murder. <laughs> if Castro assassinated President Kennedy, he is a scoundrel. So the first premise is true. Perfectly acceptable. And now what I say is, Castro is a scoundrel. So I affirm the consequent, Q. If P, then Q, so now I give you Q. And he is a scoundrel. We all know he's a scoundrel. That's true enough. And therefore we know that he assassinated President Kennedy. If P, then Q. Q, therefore P. If Shakespeare wrote, Paradise Lost. Have I? I haven't lost my audience, have I? <laughs> Paradise Lost was written by John Milton. John Milton. It's probably one of the greatest works in the English language. But if Shakespeare wrote Paradise Lost, then Shakespeare is a great author. Isn't that right? Whoever wrote Paradise Lost is a great author, a master of the English language. <coughs> so if Shakespeare wrote Paradise Lost, then Shakespeare is a great author. And now my second premise is Shakespeare is a great author. We all know Shakespeare is a great author, therefore he wrote Paradise Lost. So you see, you, can, you should learn to master these mistakes in formal logic so you can see them being put to use um, as well. I'm sure this is the only pizza party you've ever come to in your life where you learn to watch it. Do you have an opinion on Gordon Clark's logic book? Do you recommend anything about that? Uh, I wish people wouldn't put me on the spot like that. <laughs> um, all things being equal, yes, go right ahead and use it. That's fine. It's not my book of first choice. <laughs> Kobe's Introduction to Logic. Yeah, Irving Kobe, C-O-P-I. Now, and, and the big difference, of course, is that Gordon Clark is a uh, Christian, was a Christian, still is a Christian, I hope. Uh, anyway, Gordon Clark was a Christian and a Reformed Christian, and so in a sense, you might want to give you know the preference to somebody who shares you know something of your religious faith and outlook. And, and that's valuable, but I do believe that um, that in terms of uh, confidence and logic, Kobe is a better textbook. It's a lot thicker. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but you don't have to look at the third section in Kobe on inductive logic. Most courses in logic don't get into that whole thing, but Kobe has it there because he covers the whole field. You all wanted to know that. <laughs> Any other real quick questions? Then we're going to stop doing this. If not, then I want to thank you for sharing your pizza with me. And uh, I'm sure you're glad that I shared my logic with you. <laughs> I do hope that you'll remember that uh, both, both parts of what I wanted to tell you tonight you know, really complement each other, that uh, you know, the Lord is the only reliable thing in life. Whether you're talking about the experiences of your life or whether you're talking about what's reliable and true and dependable in that way. Also, then, if we don't have the Lord, we don't have anything. Our God and Father, we do remember that uh, we do not know what life holds in store. As Moses contemplated his life, the 40 years in Pharaoh's court, the 40 years in Midian, the 40 years of wilderness wandering, and as he contemplated those things and saw that life was a, a vapor, very trenchant. He asked that 
he and his people might learn to number their days that they might apply their hearts to wisdom. And so we ask that you will grant that to us as well. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for Dr. Bonson, whom you have raised up. We thank you for... And Lord, we pray that our...